Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We are going to talk today with David Epstein, who has a new book coming out titled Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David's last book, The Sports Gene, was a mega bestseller. He is also, for the full disclosure portion, uh, a friend, a longtime colleague, a collaborator, and one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Uh, This is a great book, and he starts off by talking about Roger Federer vis-a-vis Tiger Woods. So I thought it would be great to have uh, David on in advance of the publication of this book. Again, the book is called Range. And uh, this is a really interesting sports science conversation. Um, This is books about three years in the making based on a lot of uh, research in social science. And I think the conclusion is an interesting one. It applies to tennis. It applies to sports. It applies to other spheres. And this is based uh, on a lot of research and a lot of social science. So uh, here is David Epstein, and stick around. Jamie and I will talk hardcore tennis uh, after this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's, uh, you know, the first question you have to ask every author. I do not know. What is it? Other You're going to get this. Next book, You're going to get this. this oh, well, that, well, that's a whole other thing. I'm okay. preparing you for your inevitable, uh, for your barrage of interviews in your book tour. This, <laughs> this is the trite question that you're going to get innumerable times while you do your publicity tour. What made you want to write this book? I, I don't think that's trite. And actually, it grew out of, uh, in some ways, the book that I was finishing when I was still at Sports Illustrated, The Sports Gene. Um, and that book led to uh, me being invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to debate Malcolm Gladwell um, in this, this debate that was framed as 10,000 hours versus the sports yeah, gene, exactly, even though we had, exactly. you know, we had, we had plenty of common ground. But anyway... Going into that debate, I'd never met him before, and obviously I was pretty nervous because he's very clever, so I felt like I better do a lot of homework. And I figured he would argue 
uh, about the importance of a head start in highly technical or so-called deliberate practice. So to get ready, I went and gathered up every study I could find that longitudinally tracked athletes' development on, on route to becoming elite and looked at what they had to say. And it turned out that it was almost always the case that in the athletes who went on to become elite were actually later specializers who did a wide range of activities early, gained a breadth of skills, uh, learned general physical literacy, learned about their own talents and their own interests, and systematically delayed specialization uh, longer than their peers. And I was sort of surprised at that. And when we had the debate, I, I used that data. And when we're walking off the stage, I, I called it the Roger versus Tiger problem because right. it was, you know, Tiger Woods being kind of the most famous example of development. He was extremely highly in early specialization, whereas Roger Federer was totally opposite, um, as you well know. I think you described his parents as pulley rather than, than pushy, played a wide variety of sports. Mother wouldn't allow him to specialize until later than his peers. And so when we're coming off the stage, he goes, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. And then we sort of became running buddies after that and discussed it on our own time. And I started to get interested in seeing whether this pattern might hold in other other industries. And, and, and honestly, to have another sports connection, I sort of filed away what Gladwell said in the back of my head. And then I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation. Right. Uh, of course, the foundation, which is named for the late NFL player, um, who uh, died in Afghanistan, and it gives scholarships to veterans, uh, current military, military spouses who are career changing or going back to school. And I somehow ended up as one of the people who decides who gets those scholarships. And I gave a talk about this specialization data in sports. And because they weren't a sports audience necessarily, I looked a little bit at whether there was similar data in other fields and added that as like the last five minutes in a 45-minute talk, and every single one of them, this was like 15 people in this room, came up and said, oh, gosh, like I'm, I'm so relieved that, you know, maybe because we're career-changing and have done other things and are taking different skills to, to what we're approaching, uh, it's not over for us. Like literally, I have an email the next day from a guy who was a Navy SEAL who was, at the time I gave that talk in Dartmouth and Harvard grad school, at the same time, I did undergrad majored in geophysics and history, explaining to me how relieved he was that he wasn't going to be a failure. And I'm kind of like, wow, there's a real complex where we're sort of, you know, obsessed with precocity in this early specialization. And so maybe there's something really worthwhile writing about here. You don't think this, uh, th this whole notion of 10,000 hours, which has been debunked half a dozen ways, but this, this deliberate practice of 10,000 hours, you, you don't think that's the origin of a lot of this, that we need to specialize because if I start playing basketball at age 12, someone else is already 6,000 hours into their practice. They're that much further ahead of me. I, I do think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think it in some ways predates the 10,000 hours, but I think that codified it in a way that made it much more viral. Um, and the fact is the data just don't support it. I mean, the original 10,000 hours figure comes from a study of 30 violinists who were already, there, there are a couple of problems with that study. First of all, they were so highly pre-screened, they were already in a world-famous music academy when the study started. Okay, so that, that's what right, statisticians right, call a right. restriction of range problem. Right. So this would be like if I were trying to study what causes skill in the NBA, okay, and took in my sample only NBA centers, notice they'd all practice a lot and therefore concluded only practice got them where they are, not practice plus being seven feet tall because there's no variation of height. 
in my study sample. In fact, I've actually done this data analysis in the NBA. If you look at the correlation between points scored in the NBA and height for all Americans, there's a very high positive correlation between height and points scored in the NBA. But if you look at it only within players who are already in the NBA, it's negative. So if you don't understand what you're doing with the statistics, you would give parents the advice to have short kids yeah, for exactly. them to score more right. points in the right. NBA. The, the other problem was that 10,000 hours was just an average. Like almost none of the people, act, those violinists actually made 10,000 hours. Some went over and some were way under. And so by taking that average, you squash all the individual variation, which is really what you actually care about when it comes to development. So so let's go back to Tiger and, and Federer, because this is a, a tennis audience will be interesting to hear that. And I think you did a nice job of, pitting them. I mean, I, to, to me, sidebar, this is just a fascinating comparison in general, Tiger versus Federer. The fact that they have a personal mm-hmm. relationship adds to it, but it's two completely different paths to get to the top of the mountain. But mm-hmm. you write about this. It's, t- Tiger is the prototype and had the golf club in the crib at age one and was on the Mike... Du- how, how old was he when he was on the Mike Douglas show? Two. Two. And as you say, Feder was the guy whose parents said, boy, you should watch more professional wrestling and heavy metal and soccer is kind of fun. And why don't you go ride your bike? And um, they tried to boost him up to a higher level of play. And he didn't want to like have yeah, to exactly. hang out with his friends anymore. Yeah, so he exactly. just stayed back. Basically. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the story I'd always heard, um, I, I think she's no longer with us, but he took lessons at the local club and rode his bike and the, the female the, the woman who was the coach who ran the club encouraged him to play at a higher level. And he's like, realized, but then he couldn't hang out with his friends and talk about WWE. So he, uh, <laughs> he stayed back. So anyway, two, two very different approaches. So how Ty- we have Tiger professional wrestling to thank for. Yeah, Roger exactly. We, we've got the iron, uh, th- Thank you, Iron Sheik. Um, I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. But um, if Federer, and, you know, I, I think you certainly intimate that uh, one of those approaches is preferable. Why? Why is it that Roger Federer has benefited from having this, this generalist childhood and not this specialization childhood? I think there's sort of an important distinction to make here, too. So, so I use these guys, but both of them, obviously, like you said, did make it to the top. Um, and so... 
I wouldn't say that Tiger's development was wrong, but one of the things that I write a, you know, a, a fair bit about in range is that golf turns out to be uh, a particularly poor model of most of the other things that humans want to learn. And that includes most other sports. So it is possible that for golf, the, the jury is out, I would say, on the data for golf. There's just not, there's like a real dearth of, of study compared to a lot of other sports in golf. Right. So I'm not saying early specialization works in golf. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not really sure. But I don't think it's as disastrous as it is in a lot of other sports. So golf is almost like the industrial task of sports, right? You're trying to execute a known movement over and over with as little deviation as possible. Right. Basically, it's non-dynamic. Move. Exactly. It, it doesn't require any what's called anticipatory skill, which is so the reason that someone like Roger Federer looks like he has faster than human reaction speeds, which, which he doesn't, um, you know, professional athletes just don't. Um, like Albert Pujols, I remember, scored in like the 60th percentile of reaction speed compared to like a random sample of college students, you know. And um, the reason they're able to react so quickly is they've actually learned to recognize patterns of body movements and things about the flight of the ball that allow them just to see what's coming before it happens. So they just appear to have these superhuman reaction speeds. And that's sort of the key to these sports where you have to judge what anybody else is doing and where things are moving, which is most sports. Right. Uh, and most of the types of things human want to, humans want to learn. Golf is not like that. So maybe, maybe golf is more amenable to early specialization, um, but it's a bad example of most other things, whereas most of the other types of sports, you want to learn more like language, right? So we know like there's a lot of kind of bad science about the benefits of growing up bilingual, but there's some good science too. And one of the more solid findings is that kids who grow up bilingual, for example, will have an easier time learning a third language. So you can give them like a made-up language and system of grammar, and they'll be able to more pick it up without being told rules than someone who grows up monolingual. And it looks like a very similar analogy to the way sports skills are learned. You might have sort of a little bit of a delay early on if you're learning skills across multiple sports, but it builds these sort of general structures that allow you to more quickly learn anything later on going forward. So this is why like the Australian Institute of Sport, which does kind of systematic study of athletic development in a way that basically doesn't occur in the United States, found that athletes who had participated in three or more attacking sports, again, those are ones that are dynamic where a ball yeah, uh, or a person true. is flying at you, right. were then able to more quickly pick up the anticipatory skills for any other sport going forward forever. So I think there's, I think we knew already for some time now that there's an advantage to delaying specialization because A, coaches select based on biological maturation when they think it's potential. So you want to delay until... Uh, people have a chance to go through puberty. B, the earlier you pick, the more likely you stick the wrong person in the wrong sport. Basically, the, the individual doesn't know their own talents and interests. But I think what's emerged in the years since I wrote my first book is that there's an actual skill development benefit, not just this selection uh, benefit to diversifying. So, you know, now we're starting to see these studies like in Germany where they matched national soccer players. Kids went on to become national soccer players they match them at a certain age for ability. So they take kids who are deemed of the same ability at a certain age, track them for a number of years, and see who improves more. And it turns out that it's the kids who diversify their, their activities. And the longer you make that time horizon, the, the bigger the difference is for those kids, the bigger the advantage is for the kids who have this breadth of skills. What about this voguish 
concept. Uh, you, you you read the book Grit, of course, right? Angela Duckworth. Yep. So so mm-hmm. what what about this voguish concept of grit? If you are going to soccer practice one day and hanging out talking WWE with your friends the next, and the third day you you play tennis, is that not at odds with this idea that uh, tenacity and having an iron ass is at the heart of success. Yeah. I mean, I don't think grit's a, grit's a bogus concept, but I think it um, is limited. It has been extrapolated well beyond its body of evidence, right? So grit is this, this psychological construct that uses a questionnaire to measure your perseverance, which I think is important. And also your, um, uh, like the stability of your interests, basically. So you lose points if you give up easily or if your interests change a lot. So something like discussing WWE when you, you know, could be instead spending the time playing tennis is maybe not so good because your interests are, are flitting around. And the studies that made this concept so popular have been done in really restricted um, populations of people, right? It'll be like uh, kids who are already in the national finals of the spelling bee and the kids who um, have more grit will do a little bit better. But, but by the way, it only accounts for a tiny amount. Like if you look at studies of grit, so not to get too technical about it, but scientists try to discover like what accounts for variance in performance. Is it how fast someone is, how big they are, how determined they are, what goes into accounting for variance in performance until you can, you know, ideally you would account for a hundred percent, which you never can. In all these studies, grit accounts for between 1% and 6% at the most, 1% and 6%. So it's a, it's a small factor, and it shows up most highly when you've already determined exactly what the person has to do. They have to learn how to study this um, list of words for the spelling bee. When you're, when you're dealing with more open challenges, like skill development, where the exact goal isn't perfectly set out before you, right. uh, it's totally different. And that's and and grit. The the more open the challenge gets, the less amount of performance grit accounts for. And I think it's sort of problematic. And Angela Duckworth, who's most associated with the idea, herself has written about this very thoughtfully. I think because uh, I think it's gotten carried away beyond anything she ever intended. Um, it can lead to this idea that kind of diversifying your interests is is a negative. And so I think we we need to bear in mind that the 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 environments in which these studies were done are ones where the challenge is like completely clear, laid out and already delineated for you. It's nothing like the development of a total athlete who is then going to have to take those skills and apply them in fast moving situations that they've never seen before that are going to get faster and faster and more unusual as they go higher and higher up. Right. But I mean, I guess um, we've sort of talked about this, but I'm, I'm still curious how much of this is task specific and Mm-hmm. You write about, and it's a great, it's one of my favorite sports stories, is Steve Steve Nash. Steve Nash is actually a very good tennis yeah. player and played soccer as well, and then he's 13 years old and living in Western Canada, and someone says, hey, try shooting this ball in the basket. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, eight years later, nine years later, he's uh, he's playing in the NBA. Um, but it's it's sort of easy and to see. And not just playing, I mean, two-time NBA. Yeah, exactly. Right? Right? Yeah, and right. He's kind of a normal-sized guy, so he's a good example to use because he's not, like, uh, you know, physically unusual. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Yeah, he's six six three or and uh, lo- lovely guy on the side. But um, but it's easy to see how not easy, but it's it's understandable how coming late to basketball doesn't you know that doesn't foreclose possibility of success. I would submit it's harder in a sport like tennis, where even if you're an athlete, even if you're used to lateral movement, even if you're used to anticipating body language, 
the biomechanics of hitting a tennis ball from different positions on the court is mm-hmm. so specific. I, I don't know how you make up for that last time. I, I cannot imagine putting a racket in the hand of a 13-year-old and have them be a top 10 player within eight years. How much of this I mean, is I think, specific? So I, I think one of the reasons that would be unlikely to happen is because of the way the sport is structured, right? A lot of the way that sport is structured has nothing to do with what optimal development would be. Um, it has to do with like a lot of financial incentives. You're that, preempting that, my next that, question. Yeah, exactly. That's you're very good. Yeah. That force people into a certain development uh, trajectory, whether they like to or not. Right. So I think there's a lot of attempt to split the difference, right? So I think like Canadian tennis, which has had some of their, I think, you know, best success more recently, has has really strategically tried to combine. Um, the fact that you're sort of forced to, to do something at an earlier age with these long-term development principles. And there's nothing bad about early exposure, right? There's nothing bad about early exposure at all. Like early exposure to the sport is good. Right. It's just a question of um, what kind of, and, and even a lot of exposure is good, right? So like I think a good analogy to, to maybe what we're talking about is like Brazilian soccer. If you go to Brazil and you look at what they're, kids are doing playing soccer they're not playing soccer they're playing futsal which is this like miniature uh type of soccer where they have a ball that's like you know has stuffing coming out of one side and they're playing on cobblestones one day and they're playing in a very tight space um it's cobblestones one day it's sand the next day and so it's really a different game every day there's some commonality but they're kind of problem solving in a different way every day so they're having high exposure to the sport in some ways and developing those biomechanics, but they're really varying up the challenge that they're actually facing. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce behind this kind of diversification because it, it turns out to be the same for other cognitive skills. And, and, and by the way, these sports skills are cognitive skills. Like all of this stuff is happening in your brain. So I think it's, it's kind of faulty to separate these as physical skills versus cognitive skills. And it, it, it turns out that what's called mixed practice or interleaving, to, to use the technical term, is the best way to learn a skill if you then need to apply it in new situations. And that, and, and basically what this means is varying up the challenge as much as you possibly can. Right. Whether you are teaching kids math... I was going to say, interweaving um, has become this voguish, uh, this voguish education term, right? That we're, totally, we're... totally. Because it turns out, like, if you want to give kids, like, the same, you know, 100 math problems to study, instead of giving them 20 of one type, 20 of another type, 20 of the next type, where they will look like they got really good at it in front of your eyes, you want to mix them all up. They'll get super frustrated. They won't make as much progress in front of your eyes. But what they're actually learning how to do is match a strategy to a problem instead of just execute the procedure. Right, right. And I think this is, like, the common thread of why the sport diversification works, in addition to the selection stuff we already talked about, but it's you're learning to match a strategy to a situation. And the more so-called closed skills, like just the biomechanical skills, you can learn that stuff later, right? So if you want to make the best 10-year-old player, you should absolutely teach them all the closed skills of a sport, right? It's like you can teach a kid to walk early, but there's no evidence that that will be an advantage. Everyone else will catch up because everyone can learn it later. So if you want the lasting advantage, you need to teach these more open skills, which are this kind of problem solving that's harder to teach, shows less immediate progress. They won't be as good of a 10-year-old, but they'll be a better 20-year-old. How do you, I mean, you sort of preempted this question, but I'm, I'm still curious how you account for what isn't cognitive and what isn't physical, which is just experience, the, the infrastructure, the ritual of a sport, 
What is it like mm-hmm. to enter a tournament? What is it like to get a good night's sleep the night before competition? I mean, all of these elements that don't really express themselves during competition, but that are all part of being a successful athlete. I mean, Tiger Woods knew what it felt like to walk up yeah. on the 18th hole with a lead when he was seven years old. How do you account for that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a whole <laughs> a, a whole separate um, uh, area. You know, I think some people do um, better having had a lot of experience with that, and some people maybe come to it better being a little bit ignorant of that. But I still think – I think that's a much um, – sort of uh, softer skills, so to speak, but no less important. I don't think there's as much rigorous research about them, but I think there's, uh, you know, the way that sometimes an athlete's identity can get wrapped up in the things they do, right, is why we see people get things like the yips, right? They can become paralyzed and suddenly unable to do something. When you learn some of these, these biomechanical skills, they move from like the front of your brain, you know, the prefrontal cortex, this like very human area, so to speak, back to like the more primitive parts of your brain where you can execute things without thinking, like, like breathing. Um, and the problem is if someone is put off by the sleep they missed or the atmosphere they're about to compute, compete in, they, they take that stuff, they automate it, they move it back to their prefrontal cortex where they're thinking about it. So like, you know, there's this joke among scientists actually who who study skill acquisition in tennis, who say, like, if you really want to mess with your opponent, you know, you should go up to them when you shake hands over the net. Gosh, you know, the way you angled your racket on that shot was, like, really something. That was really great. Like, can you think you could do that again? Something because you want them like... to start thinking about exactly right, what they're right, doing, right. right? And so so I think um, some of this is how do you help people not de-automate the skills they've learned? And I, and I think the main thing there is is basically trying to keep them calm. <laughs> And then for some people that happens through the experience of it. And for some, it happens through a certain type of type of support they get or, or confidence in their training. Do you feel like uh, you, you need a personal Wait, that, that reminds me of a better, can I, can I yeah, give yeah, a quick yeah, better okay. little story? Yeah. So once, you know, I've been to the U S open a couple of times and, and one time I, I saw him at a, a warm-up uh, court and a bunch of people were like practicing serves and, and, you know, things that looked like they could occur in a game. And he was over there had a ball boy standing like across the court, holding his hand still and just out in front of him and was just trying to hit the ball on one bounce until it got into the kid's hand without him having to move it. So other people were over there doing these, like, right. you know, what looked like technical warm up, And he was basically like playing a kid's game um, where he was trying to hit the ball into this guy's hand without having him move it. And, and I kind of wondered at the time, one, it looks like he's still really having fun with this sport. And two, this is probably how he reaches his, you know, appropriate level of, uh, of arousal before competition. One of the great tennis contrasts is to watch Federer practice and then watch Nadal practice. And huh. Nadal's out there for, for, for two and a half hours, and he's sweating, and he's running, and it's the most intense, and he's making noise, and, and Federer's out there, and he'll, he'll practice his serve standing inside the court. I mean, not, not even the position he would use when he serves. Sometimes his practices are 20 minutes. You know, Fans will shout his name, and he'll turn around and see who's talking to him it's a completely different approach but I, but I also wonder if this doesn't uh not that this it's interesting to me I mean it's, it's all sort of militates uh towards generalization as well but I I, I guess what it, I'm uh well I it's, it's I, I'm this whole interplay this is sort of uh this is this is Kahneman right I mean this whole experience versus yeah. expertise interplay if yeah, you're, yeah. if you don't have experience, if you're coming to this late, if you're Steve Nash, or even even if you're Federer and you don't take yourself seriously in a sport till you're a teenager, yeah, what does 
what does coming late to the party in terms of experience do to your expertise? Well, a lot of that depends on what you've done before. Um, so, you know, what Kahneman found in a lot of cases is that experience um, breeds us, confidence, right? but yes. not skill, exactly. depending on, on what kind of domain you're in. Um, in sports, I would say some of the things that he talks about are, are difficult to apply to sports because for the most part with, you know, you, I don't think you see quite the same trajectory where you can build up. I mean, cause Kahneman is talking about it in outside of sports. Some of the people who are deemed the experts in the world or whatever they do, and it turned out they actually aren't very good at it. They're just very esteemed for it. Um, in, in sports, it's sort of much easier to judge the results of what, of what someone's doing and see if they're good or not. Right. Um, in terms of coming sort of late to, you know, I think the hard thing about coming late again is there are more systems in place that, that basically won't allow it. But I think the good thing about coming late is you tend to bring, um, you tend to bring new skills to the problems you're facing and, and a diversity of skills and a range of solutions. And I think that's why you see these people like, again, not to switch sports here, but like Messi, right? These, these players who are deemed really creative are ones who grew up playing futsal, not like regulation soccer. And so I think you want that analogy in whatever you're doing, um, you know, bringing this wide range of um, approaches to any problem you're facing. It's kind of why I chose the, the cover, the, the image on the cover of range is this key ring that's a, like fanned out. And, and I meant that to be an analogy for having many different potential solutions to any particular problem. And I think that becomes more and more important as you get to higher and higher level of whatever you're doing. I, I feel like we need a disclaimer portion of today's show. Um, I've I've said that we're friends and colleagues and have collaborated, but talk talk about yourself. You're you're very modest, but you uh, you have achieved all star status in this sports media game. Uh, do you, you write about this in the book? I think a little bit, but ex- explain your background. It is not conventional, and you you were not Tiger Woods uh, at, <laughs> at, at age one doing research and writing. How, how did you get into this game? Yeah, no, I mean, I was like sure of everything I was going to do. You know, when I was a teenager, I already knew that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy and be a pilot and then be an astronaut. Of course, none of those things did I end up doing. Um, I I myself was actually, <laughs> the funny, reminding me of the way I got to Sports Illustrated. I was a, a grad student in geological sciences. Um, I studied geology. And, I, at SI, you know, I used to get a lot of people asking me, should they study English or journalism to be a sports writer? And I have no idea because I studied geology and astronomy, so I didn't have very good advice. Um, but I was also a uh, competitive runner, and actually one of my training partners died at the end of a mile race, who was one of the top-ranked people in his age group in the country. And eventually I got curious in how that could happen to someone who seemed as healthy as him and decided – I wanted to merge my interest in sports and science. I was out, you know, when I decided to do this for sure, I was living in a tent in the Arctic, uh, working on my, my environmental science masters and decided I was go- wanted to do that for uh, sports illustrated, which I'd grown up reading. And so I, I, you know, long story short, I tried to get into journalism any way I could was the overnight crime reporter at a New York tabloid and finally got my foot in the door at SI as a temp fact checker. And, uh, turned out that my science and crime reporting background were really unique there and gave me a lot of value in Sports Illustrated. Um, and I don't know if you remember, but I was still a, a temp fact checker in late 2007, I think it was, when the Olympic marathon trials for 2008 came to Central Park. 
I had and I had been wanting to write about sudden death athletes for Sports Illustrated, and the guy who was ranked fifth or sixth in the country dropped dead like 20 blocks from our office in the middle of the race. And the editors came to me and said, "Hey, um, would you be interested still in writing about sudden cardiac death and athletes?" So then all of a sudden I was a temp fact checker and had a cover story on sudden cardiac death and athletes, and I kind of became Sports Illustrated science writer. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was for sure these, these skills where I, where I left like grad school and was like, well, that was a waste that ended up being by far the most important, um, components of my journalistic career because they allowed me to read scientific papers in a way that was rare for journalists. And that got me interested in genetics and led to this book, the sports gene that kind of took on a life of its own. And, uh, so I don't even try to like plan what I'm going to do next anymore, but it keeps turning out these experiences that I didn't expect to lead directly to what I'm doing end up being like my most valuable, most valuable assets. And by the way, you mm. came from what you were a lawyer before you came to Sports Illustrated, like as an intern or something, weren't you? <laughs> uh, you have far more keys arrayed in your key ring than, than I do. But yes, I did not take a uh, conventional path to uh, this media game either. And how much have you written about crime and legal stuff in sports? Like for you also, you know, I imagine you're one of the most productive Sports Illustrated writers that there's ever been. And again, it's this background that you probably thought at the moment was like, well, that was a waste. It turned out to be like one of the things that set you apart in Sports Illustrated, don't you think? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, but both of us probably wish we'd had uh, this, uh, you know, we would would have been armed with this knowledge to respond to our parents who wondered what the hell we were doing, uh, leaving (laughs) our science career and law careers to uh, go, go write about Sweaty men and women. But um, no, I mean, I, I think that's it, it speaks as well. I, I think it speaks as well to journalism and media as it does to either of us that it, that yeah. it can accommodate these different paths. But um, yeah. Um, all right. This was great. Wait, let me last question, because I think I think a lot of our listeners, too. We have a lot of tennis parents and junior tennis players. I think uh-huh. some, some of our listenership are, are tennis fans who will uh, be very interested in your observations about Roger Federer. But I think a lot of this there's. This is sort of the the practical portion of today's show. What can I, can I share? Yeah. Can I share one little tidbit yeah, about yeah. Um, Andy and, and Jamie Murray's mom? That, that Judy Murray. Oh, we we stop at nothing yeah. to uh, to talk about Judy Murray. The floor is yours. What do you got? Okay, I, I once gave a talk at this at a pre-U.S. Open kind of conference where a bunch of people are in town, and so they like lay down tennis courts in a hotel in Midtown and and have a conference and demonstrations. And I remember going to see her talk, and she put up. Um, like images and, and videos of what she does with kids where like they're playing tennis through, uh, you know, slants in a tree, like hitting the ball through the branches and then using that as a net or like playing all these games that kids would play and like varying up the challenge. So to me, it looks like she's like doing with kids, like kind of the futsal version of tennis where they're adjusting to all these different challenges. And it's also fun. But what really struck me was that because she's the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, um, people were comfortable taking their kids out of like the national development system, which was like much more rigid and handing them over to her so that she could let them do the things that basically kids would do in less formal settings anyway, but that it was her sign off that made that seem okay, which I thought was kind of, kind of brilliant. So she, she's figured out how to like, you know, make a business out of uh, allowing out of like systematizing informal developments of, of, perceptual motor skills, which I thought was really neat. But, you, but you're saying, too, because it had the Murray seal of approval. Yeah, this yeah. Where, people where people would say if it was like a normal coach, they'd be like, this is nonsense, like hitting the ball through, exactly. we're playing through tree branches instead, but as long as it's, um, you know, the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, then like, mm. 
okay, it must be great. <laughs> what, um, what do you tell these parents? What do you tell these kids who are still convinced that every hour they are not playing tennis is an hour their opponent is, and they're not chipping away at 10,000 hours, and these are not uh, helpful detours, but these are detours that are steering them down uh, a path that is adverse to their success? I mean, what, what do you, I, I feel like you're, this, what, what you say makes all the sense in the world, and y- you and I clearly uh, have our preference. I hear your son in the background. I can imagine your, your child rearing will be uh, favoring generalism and not specialization. Uh-oh, but I, sorry, I do. I was uh, trying to like keep no, that. No, it's I hope all I'm good. not like messing up any of the recording. We, or we've all been there. Uh, you remember my? Okay. I'll, I'll tell you my story some other time with my kids. Um, but uh, if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I feel like this this idea is um, flying in the face of conventional thinking, especially in youth sports these days. Right. I was talking, I was talking to you, uh, you want a funny to be story? the best you can at X, you have to do yeah, something exactly. other than X. That's exactly right. Exactly. Um, and I think that is that is difficult to conceptualize. And again, if, you, if you're trying to be the best 10-year-old or 11-year-old or 12-year-old, or if someone tells you, well, you can't be on the seventh grade team if you weren't on the sixth grade travel team and so on and so on and so on, right? Like when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a U6 travel soccer team that met near me, right? Which is like because five-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of 9 million people, right? That has nothing to do with their development. It has everything to do with this kind of like financial incentives of adults to create these sort of pipelines. Right. And if you, if you, if you do want, you know, maybe the best experience for a certain athlete is to be the 10 or 11 or 12-year-old champion. And if that's the case, you should teach them these closed technical skills as quickly as you can. And, and maybe that's like the best experience they'll ever have with the sport. If you're focused on their long-term development, what you want to do is try to create these these much more general abilities that are the canvas on which they can then paint any much more specific skills um, going forward. And so what you really want is them to base problem solving in a really wide array of uh, environments. And, and I don't think, and I think you can split the difference like the way that Judy Murray did, where you don't have to take them away from tennis, but you can make the tennis different the same way that futsal makes really the game is different right, depending right. on what the ball is like, what the environment you're playing in is like, you know, what, what the angles and, and the shape of the area you're playing and how many people you're playing with. So I think the the most palatable message is, look, we can get a lot of these benefits by, by incorporating the best of informal development where you still have a tennis track, you still have a tennis ball, but you're really changing the challenge all the time. And maybe that will, that will feel okay and still feel more related to what you're doing, but also capture a lot of the benefits of, of this diversity and problem solving. I was thinking reading this book. Remember when you and I, um, remember we wrote at one point about Bo Jackson? Yep. Does, does Bo Jackson have any chance of existing today? Oh, I, I think Bo Jackson certainly could, but I don't think he'd be allowed. That's what I mean. Right? Like, yeah, I think exactly. Like, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, people forget that like a lot of the athletes, these guys like Federer think we're, we're seeing athletes with longevity we've never seen before. You think, of course, like someone like Tom Brady, right? Like nobody remembers that he was drafted into baseball before he was drafted into football. Like he wasn't he wasn't focused on on quarterbacking at the time. Right. And so I, and I think they're and, and, you know, we're seeing I, I can't 
was this you who did these analytics that I was looking at where it was like uh, the the son or daughter oh, yeah, of a right, pro athlete right. is something like 50 times more likely to get a scholarship uh, for sports, even if it's yeah, exactly. a sport that their parent didn't play. Right, right. Um, and so I think, and we see now even athletes at the highest level who are choosing between sports at the pro level. And we see in, in the Olympic sports in places like um, the UK and Australia where they uh, like really improve their performance in Olympics by creating what they call talent transfer programs, which is just a fancy word for take adults who have played a wide range of sports don't seem like they're going to make it, you know, to the Olympic team and anything they've done so far and let them try a bunch of other sports. And they've gotten not just medalists, but world record holders out of doing that. People, it's like the anti-10,000 hours. Like, okay, you're an adult. You seem kind of stagnated in this other sport. Let's try you in a couple other things. And they find that they can uniquely apply some of these other skills and find a better fit. Um, and and so that like seems to seems to work, and it's and it's kind of amazing. Um, but I feel like yeah. uh, I I wish the the interweaving I mean, that is uh, found favor in my yeah. kids' school. I wish we had yeah. in sports as well. But it's it sounds like yeah. very old timey when you, you know John Lucas to, to take this back to tennis. Uh, John Lucas. Yeah. But again, uh, the, the problem you said. Sorry, I didn't totally yeah. answer the question. Is I yeah. think that you'd be prevented. Right. We remember like Deion Sanders playing two sports yeah, and exactly. missing part of one season and helicoptering in. So I think there are a lot of logistical reasons why nobody really wants that <laughs> to happen. I No, I, I've heard every explanation from insurance to injury prevention and the basketball coach is – he doesn't care if the kid plays football if you could guarantee him he's healthy, but <laughs> right. he's worried the kid's going to get yeah, dinged up so when the season starts. Yeah, exactly. All right, this is uh, – this is great. We have to give up the room, but um, I'm glad we did this. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm ahead of the curve here. Um, you're going to be doing a lot of these interviews. This was. Um, I hope so. You're, yeah, you're you're the tip of the spear for sure. Good luck with this. We will uh, we will link it. We'll encourage everyone to read it. Especially, I'm I'm thinking, c- coaches are uh, the people I really want to make sure see this book. P- parents as well, young athletes, but this needs to find its way to the hands of every every coach, certainly every tennis coach. And uh, the fact that you lead that. with the fact that you lead with Roger Federer, uh, you, you you had us all won over there. But uh, congrats, <laughs> great book. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right. Thanks to David Epstein. Great conversation uh, with a dear friend and former colleague for uh, for many many years. Uh, thanks as always to Jamie. Uh, Jamie, let's we'll talk some tennis shall we that was uh, that was an interesting conversation didn't get so much into the tennis results of this week i do think there's something instructive for uh for tennis players are you with me that uh it does seem like generalization is better suited for some sports than for others definitely i think we uh we talked about this before i don't think that young athletes should specialize um you know so early on at a young age. But one thing I thought was really interesting was his conversation about Federer and anticipation and how players and athletes like him tend to look at either the flight of the ball or their opponent's body movements, and they appear to have these crazy reaction speeds. But in reality, he's saying that it's really just more of him observing, which it's um, really fascinating. Yeah, the whole anticipation thing is so interesting and obviously applies to tennis as he was saying more than more than golf. Um but it's yeah, it was it was so I I'm I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. So, it did, was enjoyable. Did you read Sports Gene? Yes. Do you remember the anecdote uh, I was thinking about this with reaction time. And I think it was Albert Pujols, though don't quote me on that. 
uh, so you know, MVP, Hall of Fame baseball player, and he could not hit Jenny Finch's pitches. So underhand softball player, softball pitchers throwing to Albert Pujols. This guy's used to hitting 100-mile-an-hour fastballs over a fence 400 feet away. He could not get around on Jenny Finch's pitches. And he said, well, why, why is that? The ball's bigger, and it's not coming at 100 miles an hour. And the answer, like you said, was he wasn't used to gauging and intuitively figuring out the body motion of the opponent, in this case the pitcher. So the fact that the ball was coming from a different angle. In Major League Baseball, they don't throw with the motion of a windmill softball pitcher, um, which I, I thought that's a really interesting point vis-a-vis tennis as well. You would think that a different service motion would be so effective because, again, it's not about reaction speed. You, you about love you, this you, underhand you, serve conversation. I think that <laughs> any advantage that is within the rules should be at least experimented with. It's but, fair. Uh, it's fair. Albert Pujols couldn't hit Jenny Finch. I mean, think about that. Right. And it's clearly not about, oh, I can see the ball coming off of John Isner's racket. It's not reaction speed. It's that you sit there and you practice enough returns on a 120-mile-an-hour serve, and eventually you get the hang of it. You guess right. You see little... You probably can't even articulate them, but you see these sort of minuscule adjustments in the right. body that, uh, I mean, Andre Agassi always said that. I mean, sometimes there's the famous story of Andre Agassi and Boris Becker, and based on which way Boris Becker's tongue was hanging, Agassi could guess the serve. Uh, that's a fairly obvious tell. I'm sure there are a lot more subtle, even imperceptible tells that Federer probably couldn't articulate, but there's a reason why you don't see him flat-footed much. You, there's a reason why he guesses right so often. Yeah, I think these intangibles, these things that, as you say, most of these athletes probably can't articulate are so incredibly interesting. And they, it, it makes you wonder about you know how important and valuable it is for someone to have the experience like a Federer or Serena. You know, um, and, and I guess on the flip side, it makes it that much more remarkable when a younger player with less experience does come in and, you know, get the upset or, or just come out of nowhere and, and, and break out and win, win a title, you know. So it's, it's interesting. Let's um, – we could talk about this for a long time. I mean, I also thought about the curse of expertise, which is that at some level when you become so elite at a task, it's like breathing. I mean, it's what we were talking about, frontal cortex and your, your caveman brain, that mm-hmm. um, at some level it becomes so intuitive that it's like saying, how do you breathe? Well, I don't know. I can't articulate that. Um, Federer always, I, I think, continuing with him, it's, it's always amazing to me how well he can articulate with what he does. I mean, other times you say, Michael Jordan, how did you make that move? And it's not just limited to sports. I mean, you, they, they always say you don't want a, you know, a Stanford world-class engineer tutoring your kid on how to do a Rubik's Cube because it's so intuitive. That you don't want Yo-Yo Ma as your kid's violin teacher because uh, – or, or string teacher, because it's so intuitive, they skip steps. They can't articulate what they do. It's just, just do it is more than a, a catchphrase. That's how Michael Jordan views his basketball. It's always interesting to me that Federer is actually really articulate when it comes to breaking down process in a way that other athletes and other right. sort of pr- practitioners at this elite level aren't always able to do. Um, let's talk, uh, we had a plea to talk more tennis news so um, that comes to us in a strange week, sort of uh, a bit of a down week for uh, for tennis. We sort of used to use this week after Miami for Davis Cup, and now that doesn't really happen, at least not at the um, at the level we're accustomed to, because we're going to this uh, 
one week Lollapalooza. We had a, a women's event in Charleston. Did you watch any watch any clay court tennis from Charleston on I, Tennis Channel? I did not, but a week ago, Madison Keys is someone who I was a little bit concerned about or just, you know, concerned about the lack of hearing her and about her and what's going on with her injury, her results. Um, but happy to hear or see that she, you know, won the title in Charleston. She beat Caroline Wozniacki. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit of redemption there for her. I know clay is not always her favorite surface. Um, she's happy to admit that, but good to see. I would agree with that. We now have 16 champions um, yes. in 16 events. The number the keeps side. growing. The number keeps growing. Who's going to be the first to, uh, to yeah, break gonna it? Yeah, who's going to be the first repeat winner? I mean, the other irony is that there's some big names that have yet to win uh, to win titles. Sloan Stevens was a player that uh, Madison Keys beat in Charleston. Uh, Madison Keys, better clay court player, I would submit, than uh, she herself, that a lot of people give her credit for. Uh, but here she is. And I, th I think you're right. Nice to see her. Nice to see her break through. Um, let us talk. We had a question. Speaking of Madison Keys. We'll do one mailbag question. This week we handed over the uh, – I've got some some TV stuff I've got to wrap up. So this is a, a week I can't devote as much time as I'd like to uh, to tennis. So we gave mailbag honors to Mackie McDonald, now in the top 60, playing in Houston this week. Mackie kindly uh, volunteered to take care and answer mailbag questions. But we got one question. Kick us around with you. This is from uh, – got to find out who sent this. And I think it's from Matthew N., Matthew N. of Brooklyn asked at the quarter turn, so three months into the year, biggest surprises and biggest disappointments in tennis so far. Uh, you want to have at that? Yeah. I was, you go I first. Was, I was going to say on surprise-wise, dare we say the 16 winners of the 16 WTA tournaments and just Ooh, put them all answer. in one. I mean, it's it's it, this is a difficult question. I feel like there are a lot of caveats. I think the majors have been very different from – the standard tournaments in terms of results, in terms of the players that have uh, done well there. So it's it was a little hard for me. Um, Surprise-wise, I have been a little stuck on Belinda Bentris this year. I think um, not that I was I, – I said in the beginning of the year that I thought this was kind of going to be her comeback year, but I'm, um, you know, surprised. She, she, she did just lose this past week, um, but I am surprised to see her – doing as well as she did. I mean, beating Naomi Osaka, I think, is a really big jump for her uh, so early in the season. So it's not a shocking surprise. It's going to shake everyone to the core. But it's a good call. Hard to shake anyone to the core when you have uh, <laughs> 16 winners in 16 events. Um, Benjic is a good call. She's only 22 years old. We forget that. Um, How about you? Um, let's see. I would say surprise... I, th I mean, I think you're on to something. I think the rhythms of this year have been surprising. Uh, Naomi Osaka wins back-to-back -back Grand Slams. That's tremendous. Hasn't done a whole lot outside of that in his switch coaches and has right. switched apparel, and there's a lawsuit. I mean, there, there's a lot. I don't know if you saw the New York Times story saying she has uh, till her 22nd birthday, with his, which is this year, to decide whether she is going to be a Japanese citizen because you cannot have dual citizenship when you turn That's 22. That's not a big Did you see choice that? at all. That was very strange. Or what? It's it's a huge deal. I mean, yeah, I I I'm not sure I understand the uh, the rationale behind that. But but I mean that's a really big decision. It's a big call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and especially as you say at this point in the year, I mean, she's one person that I think can go on either side of this conversation. Like I said, I depending on whether you're talking about the majors or outside of the majors. Um, 
you could say she's a huge surprise, right? Uh, you know, she's come all this way and oh my god, she won again in Australia and then on the flip side been a lot of drama for uh, yes. 90 days. Luckily, that drama does include a, a Grand Slam title and so and a number one ranking. So I'm sure that that part is thrilling. But uh, yeah, I, I had heard in Indian Wells, I'd heard this Adidas thing had gone south. But the rumor I had heard was that Uniglow had backed up the Brinks truck and this all tied into the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo and that it was a done deal that uh, she was going to migrate over to Uniglo and clearly Nike came in at the last hour and um, they must have absolutely blown the, the doors off with their, with their deal because um, again, it was not just Adidas. There was, there was Uniglo in the picture as well, but uh, no, a lot, a lot going on in Naomi Osaka's world. Um, other surprises. I, I think it's a, even um, given the high bar, I would say moderate surprise that Roger Federer is playing uh, at this level. I mean, again, I, I would, I would submit he's played the best tennis of uh, of anyone in 2019. What about um, what about disappointments? This one was a little harder for me. As I said, I think Madison Keys might have snuck up in there if you asked me a week ago. Um, she had two like tough losses at at Indian Wells yeah, rough, and Miami, rough March, right? um, and I think you know with her injuries and just everywhere, she I felt like she was at such a high for such a long time, and then everything sort of came crashing down for her. Um, so disappointing little heartfelt disappointment there um and then the other one which is also injury related but also caveat the majors is is nadal you know uh he he does so well in australia and then since then we've really i mean injuries have completely a rough go of it yeah so he he looks so good for the first 13 days of the Australian Open. Right, and that's what's disappointing about it. I mean, you you hate to see such a high level and then so quickly deterioration. Um, it's interesting. I, I mean, I was thinking, I mean, I'm the, going back to surprises, I mean, I think we can do, can we do a catch-all for Canada? Yes. <laughs> uh, with three three teenagers that have all made waves in, in very different ways. Um, all of them, you know, in, in one case, top 20, in one case, top 30, in one case, top 40. Um, the other surprise, I, I would say, um, or back, you, you want me to do disappointment? All yes, right. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I'll go, I'll go with Zverev, who, uh, is still number three, but has 10 wins this year. No titles and really, really hasn't done much. Unfortunately, but, he might have gotten that award a few times. Yeah, in, exactly. In the past um, years. For, for a guy, for a guy years. who's done a lot <laughs> is still quite young yeah. and, uh, is a top five player. Um, a lot of disappointments woven in there. All right, that uh, d- does it for this week. We have to give up the studio for who's coming now? NFL? I think NBA. Oh, NBA. All right. We're um, in the middle here. They've, they've got playoffs coming up and we've got um, we've got April tennis. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks to Jamie. Thanks to David Epstein for uh, talking sports science. We'll have another guest next week. Keep your suggestions coming. You can leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, um, wherever you get your uh, wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and we'll do it in seven days